Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Okay, everybody, welcome back to Behind the Knife. Uh, we're continuing along in our financial series, and today we are fortunate to have Dr. Jordan Frey. Jordan is a plastic surgeon in Buffalo, New York. Uh, he's a successful real estate investor, and he runs the very popular physician financial blog, The Prudent Plastic Surgeon. Jordan, thanks for joining us on Behind the Knife. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Excited to be here. So just to start off, can you just give our listeners you know, a quick introduction on where you came from and how you got in- interested uh, in real estate investing? Yeah, I, um, so like you said, now I, I live in Buffalo where I practiced for almost two years after finishing uh, six years of plastics residency and a one year fellowship in microsurgery. Um, and I did that all in New York City. Uh, and then I ended up moving home from me, which is Buffalo, with my wife, who is very much not from Buffalo. She's from Miami, but she's acclimating. Um, and so my whole sort of financial awareness started the end, really the end of my fellowship. So the the end of my seven years of training. And I, previous to that was totally financially clueless, like buried my head in the sand, knew nothing about anything. And I recognized as I was getting to the end of my training that I was experiencing burnout and there were a bunch of things contributing to that. But a big one after a lot of self-reflection was the fact that my financial well-being was just non-existent. And I was about to finally graduate. People were like, oh, you're going to be an attending surgeon. You're going to be making all this money. It's going to be the good life. I just didn't feel like that was the case at all because I had half a million dollars in uh, student loan debt. I had credit card debt. I literally zero savings, uh, no investments, didn't know how to invest. I I was married. We had two little kids at the time. Um, So it seemed like I was just entering that sort of like, you know, more money, more problems kind of situation. And and it really stressed me out. So my wife and I decided, hey, we're going to start learning about this. We're going to take control of our finances. It seemed really scary. It seemed intimidating. Um, But then we got into it and started learning the basics. and, and it made sense and it wasn't as hard as we thought. Um, and I found that I kind of liked it. And around that same time, I started learning about real estate investing or hearing different physicians have success doing it. And, you know, my initial reaction was like, I can't do that. Um, which then again, I kind of, you know, it's, it's a lot of surgeons who listen to this and maybe they'll <laughs> appreciate, but I was like, you know what, there's like, pediatricians doing this and doing it successfully. Why, why can't I, like, I'm a Mm -hmm. capable person. I made it through like a a very difficult residency and and do tough stuff. Like I can, I can do this. So um, my wife and I just started learning about it. And once we had prepared enough, which you never feel fully prepared, we bought our first duplex, which uh, will be, that'll be two years this fall. 
um, will be two years of having that. So um, we did that and then we just started doing more and more. So now we have four and we have three more under contract. Um, and, and it's been something that, that we enjoy, you know, I still work full-time as a physician, uh, as a surgeon, uh, we self-manage, um, which really has not been, um, bad at all. So that's sort of in a nutshell, how I came around to it. So let's dive into the real estate. What advantages does adding real estate to your investment portfolio have? Why not just keep investing in stocks and bonds? Yeah, I don't think like you certainly can just invest in stocks and bonds. You know, like as a physician, I don't think it's a requirement or something that you invest in real estate. If you save 20% of of your income, invest in, you know, index funds, you're going to be fine. You're going to be able to retire on your own terms after like a great career, you know, whatever, 20, 30 years. Um, But for us, real estate it brought something that could kind of accelerate that wealth building. And I'm really into the idea of financial freedom of working because you want to, not because you have to. I really enjoy my work as a surgeon, but I also know I'm a lot happier um, working because I want to, not because I have to, and having the freedom to be really agile and, and, and flexible in what I can do if circumstances change. So this was a way to kind of accelerate that. Um And especially on the active investing side, you know, you can invest more passively, which I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about. We um, invest actively, meaning we buy properties and rent them out. Um, And so it's pretty cool because it makes money a lot of different ways. You know, we, we, like I said, we buy them, we get a mortgage on them, and then we rent them out. Our tenants pay us every month rent. And that rent exceeds the mortgage and the maintenance and expenses and puts extra money in our pocket. So that's cash flow. But at the same time, we're making money because they're paying off our mortgage. Um, there's also a lot of tax benefits. And it's also an inflation hedge, which you know we've seen inflation is pretty high right now. But as inflation goes up, rents go up. So that kind of evens out in that regard. Um, so we we saw those benefits and really, really liked them and saw a lot of other success stories and, and learned from as many people as we could. And we're still doing that. Um, and, and now having jumped in and seen it snowball to, you know, where one small property is turned into four, which is now going on more and more, um, we can really see those benefits stack up. Great. Uh, this is really, so, uh, full disclosure, like I don't own any investment properties, but I'm like, that's like the, the, uh, this is really applicable to me. The reason I set this up is because I had a lot of questions, to be honest with you, because um, I'm really interested in investment properties. Uh, but let's say you wanted to go, um, uh, I'm assuming you probably are invested in multiple different things. You're not 100% real estate. So in this yeah. like hybrid investing strategy, you know, what is your percentage of your portfolio as real estate? What percentage do you think is a good mix of that with other equities? Yeah, I think, you know, everyone's going to be different. There are people, there are physicians I know who are 100% invested in real estate. I don't think that's a very typical scenario. I'm trying to think pretty much all of them at this point are out of medicine and and just focusing on real estate. So um, is that a possibility? Yes. But for most people who who actually want to continue practicing, that's not um, the way it'll be. For now, I'm trying to think back the last time because I calculated things. Of my net worth, probably about half of that is is real estate, and half is 
you know, retirement accounts and stocks and bonds and that kind of thing. Um, the real estate has definitely accelerated more like of, of the money that my wife and I save every month, probably about a third goes to paying off student debt, which I still have. Um, a third goes to retirement accounts and a third goes to real estate. Um, so that a third has ballooned into, you know, like half of the net worth just because it, it has, you know, grown quicker and stocks have gone down now. So what a rough year. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we kind of mentioned it. There's different ways to invest in real estate. Can you take us kind of broad steps, uh, active versus passive and, and the pros and cons of each? Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good question because that's probably like the, the inflection point for for all investors is deciding kind of which side they want to get on for the most part. Um, so active investing is like what I'm doing. Like you, you buy a property or properties, um, you rent them out, you, you manage them and you, you make profit off of that via, like I said, cash flow, paying down your mortgage, the tenants paying down your mortgage, tax benefits, inflation, hedge, et cetera. Um, that, you know, most people, I, tell that I do that, their initial reaction, whether the physician or not, but especially the physicians is like, well, I don't have time to do that. That's, I don't want to get called by people because they have a leaky toilet in the middle of the night. Um, that's like a, a big limiting belief. And I mean, that's what I thought in the beginning too. I can say now my wife and I, you know, we self-manage these properties just to maximize our um, cash flow from them. And we do invest in the same city that we live in, which allows us to do that. But um, you know, once you build out a team of people, it's really easy to, to manage because, you know, now if a tenant has some issue like a leaky toilet or whatever, we just call our plumber, they go over, fix it. You know, our time was whatever the five minutes spent texting the plumber. Um, but that's kind of active. You can also hire a property management company to do all of that management stuff for you. Like if you're investing, let's say you live in New York City, it's not really feasible to buy like an apartment building in New York city, obviously. Um, so you could invest somewhere else and have a property manager take care of the property. Um, so that's active investing. Then passive investments, there's a range. Um, and we say nothing is like hundred percent passive because you still need to put some, some work in, but these are ones where you're not really, you know, putting the, the sweat in, so to speak with the property. So the most passive would be something called real estate investment trusts which are basically an easy way to think of that as sort of just like an index fund or mutual fund of real estate investments. And this is something you could buy from your brokerage that you could, uh, you know, buy some in your retirement account, a very safe, um, you know, 100% passive in investment. You, you kind of just buy it and forget about it. It's not, you don't gain any of the tax benefits from it or any of that additional stuff. But um, you're invested in real estate, which is diversifying your portfolio. Then the next level is kind of syndications and real estate funds. And so this is just someone, just a person or a group of people who basically say, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to buy a big property. Like I'm going to buy a 100 unit apartment complex in, in the terms of a syndication. It's, it's usually just one big property like that, or I'm going to buy a ton of properties, you know, like seven or eight or 20 uh, apartment buildings in the case of a fund. And this person can't do it by themselves. So what they say is, okay, I'm going to be the quote unquote sponsor of this deal. 
And I'm going to convince a lot of other people to give me money to invest in this. And we're going to raise enough money to buy these things. And hopefully it makes money and I'm going to make money and the people who invest are going to make money. Um, so that person who's the sponsor, they're the, the, the one putting the sweat in. they're finding the property, they're managing the property, they're, um, you know, doing the due diligence and underwriting and making sure it's a good property. The the limited partners are the people who just give money. They basically give their money and 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 that's it. If if the property does well, they make money. If it doesn't, they lose money. Um, so, and, and there are really good syndications. You just that control is really out of your out of your hand. You you have to do a lot of due diligence on your end and a lot of vetting to find a sponsor that you really trust. And there are really great sponsors out there. Um, there are also sponsors who are not so great. And you sort of have to just find the right one. So that's why I say it's it's not totally passive because upfront you really do have to work to to make sure um, you're finding the right sponsor and what they're telling you about the properties that you agree with and think that they make a good investment. But after that, it does become passive because you're not um, you're not doing the day to day stuff. Okay, so there's sort of three tiers. You sort of have your index fund of you know, REITs and things like that. And then you have your syndications and then you have the active as far as owning everything. Exactly. And the, and the risks correlate with whichever level you kind of take the risk and benefit. Exactly. Okay. Now, and can you tell me what you mean by sweat equity and why it is so powerful and important? Yeah. The sweat equity is basically like, it, the way I think of it is like you doing the stuff that most other people don't want to do. Like, you know, a lot of physicians, they'll say, well, I want to invest in real estate, but I don't want to deal with in investing actively, or like I said, the toilet call or finding properties or, or what have you. Um, so they'll find someone else like a sponsor of these syndications and, and that sponsor is putting in the sweat equity, but that person's also going to make the most money off of the deal and, and have the best sort of return on their investment. So, you know, what, we try to do is, you know, my wife and I are partners in this. In the beginning, we did. We spent a lot of time learning about this stuff. When we would look at properties, it would take us a long time to analyze the property to say, okay, is this one we're going to do or not do? We had to look at a bunch of properties before we would find a good one. And, and that was all sweat equity. Now, because we have that practice, we we find, you know, we're we're putting in less actual sweat equity, but we're reaping the same benefits from it. Um, same thing with with managing. You know, we could pay a property manager ten percent uh, of our income from the properties to manage the properties for us. But we found a system where it's really not too much work on our end, and it's pretty easy. And we still then we now we essentially pay zero percent for property management. So that's a lot more money that we keep in our pocket. So there's benefits from the sweat equity. Everyone's going to have a different tolerance for it. Um, but like, for instance, our, our first place, my wife and I decided we were going to paint it, which we're never, we're never doing again, <laughs> you know, like it's so much easier to just hire someone. So that's sweat equity that we're like, it's not worth putting in, but then there's sweat equity that is worth putting in. And it's all about finding that balance. So how do you get started? Let's say, you know, like asking for a friend, right? So, um, yeah. you know, you're, you're really thinking about diving in and you want to get started on your first investment property. Um, can you tell us just kind of your story of your first investment property? How many did you actually have to look at? How much time did it take? 
And maybe, you know, what are some lessons you've learned along the way? Like now, what do you do? How do you screen and analyze these investment properties? What tools do you use? Yeah, no, great question. I think, so the most important thing to start is you, you want to educate yourself, obviously, like anything else. I'll say the two, there's two books that if you read these two books, you'll, you'll have enough preparation. It won't necessarily feel like that at the time, but you'll have enough preparation to, to jump in. Um, one is called The Millionaire Real Estate Investor by Gary Keller. Um, and the other one is A Doctor's Guide to Real Estate Investing for Busy Professionals. That's by a physician, uh, Corey Fawcett's his name. He's actually a general surgeon. Um, so that was the first step was we read a ton um, and, and tried to kind of understand the concepts. Once you do that, it's sort of like, you know, when you start residency, like you'll never feel you're ready to start residency, but at some point you just have to get hands-on experience. And it, that's sort of the point you're at after you've read particularly those books. Um, but the next most important step is, is building your team because you're not going to do it by yourself. And the most important person on your team is your real estate agent. Um, and this is where I see most people kind of get hung up because maybe they have a real estate agent they used to buy like the primary home or their friend's new or something like that. But you want to find one that really specializes in investment properties. So you want to be asking them stuff like how many properties they have, how they manage them, how they found them, if they have access to off-market deals, et cetera. And so we interviewed you know, a number of investor real estate agents ended up going with one pair that we still use today. And that's been the biggest benefit because we really, we had to do a lot and get to a point of trusting them, but we really trust them now and they've helped us tremendously. So, you know, we built that up. We found um, a contractor that we've used, you know, we found a plumber, stuff like that. We found a, a mortgage lender person. So you want to start talking to these people to gather a team. But then when you're actually looking at properties, what we did was we, and I'll define my criteria, but we basically came up with criteria of what types of properties we were looking for. We told that to our investor real estate agent and said, when you find properties that meet this criteria, give them to us. If, if there's properties that don't meet them, don't send them to us. We just want the ones we want you to filter out. Um, and, and then we started looking ourselves because like on uh, Redfin or Zillow or the MLS just so we could get practice. And essentially what we said is we were looking for small multifamily, so two to four unit properties uh, in Buffalo that um, met a cash on cash flow of 10% or greater. So what that meant is um, that the amount of rent and income that you were making from that property after the mortgage and after the expenses for the year was 10% or greater than the amount of money that came out of my pocket and into the property. And that can sound really convoluted, but what that basically like the amount of money that comes out of your pocket for a property is equal to the down payment plus the closing costs plus any repairs and renovations. And then your income is just your rent minus the, the mortgage payments every month minus the expected maintenance expenses. Um, and there's, we actually, it actually, this is good timing because earlier this week is when we found out it was actually done, but we created an app that you can find on the app store that does this calculation for you that you just input the data and it puts it in. It's called cash cow 
it's, it's just a free app on the app store. Um, and so basically we looked for properties like that. And we initially, we looked at a ton, like we would find all these properties and be like, Oh, this could be a good one. And we'd run the numbers and then it wouldn't work. Or we'd run the numbers and it did work, but we talked to a real estate investor agent. He's like, yeah, well, in theory that could work, but that's like in a really bad area and good luck trying to collect rents and stuff like that. So that's where someone like that comes in. But we probably looked at like 20 places before we found the first one. And we probably put in three or four offers that didn't get taken. And then we finally got our first one. Um, but now it's it's much more streamlined. Like what generally happens is either we'll happen to see a good one, send it to our agents and say, what do you think? Or those they'll find one either off market or on market and say, Hey, this looks like a good one for you guys. Um, most of the time we'll see it and it, it will fit our criteria. And, and then we just decide, okay, how much do we want to offer? And we make the offer. And if it gets accepted, great. If not, then we just move on to the next one. So that's sort of our process now. Awesome. That's a, that's a, that's excellent. I'm definitely going to check out that app. That sounds, that sounds, uh, that sounds cool. Um, so along those lines though, like what if you live like for, for, uh, instant, uh, like uh, you live in a really high cost living area. You mentioned New York mm-hmm. city where, you know, it's almost impossible. It's a really competitive market. The cost of houses, the, the, or the rents don't keep up with the mortgage is and it's like impossible to make a cash on cash or cash flow positive investment. What recommendations do you have for people in that situation is remote investing an option? How do you analyze yeah. remote markets? What's your, what's your advice? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I mean, I think obviously one option is to invest in in syndications or funds or things like that. And the other option is investing remotely, which definitely is something that that can be done. I mean, I know a bunch of just because with my blog, I talk about, you know, our investments and we've had success. And so there's been a number of people who have reached out and have ended up investing in Buffalo. Um, But I know remote investors from all over and it's it's definitely possible. What you want to do is, you know, find a market which obviously the whole country is open to you. What I'd recommend is just going on different sites or talking to people who've had, you know, better or worse experiences in some places. And then you just want to choose a market and stick to it. You don't want to kind of hop around because then you have to relearn the market all the time. And, and truly, honestly, in in all markets, even you know, in the New York tri-state area, there are deals. They're just a lot harder to find. So you find a market that has more opportunities, stick to it. Um, Like I'll use Indianapolis for an example, that's been a popular one uh, lately. Um, So once you do that, it's the same thing. You want to find members of your team. And again, it's the same exact process. When, you know, we were finding real estate investor agents, we looked them up online, talked to people who invest in the area, got their contact and called them on the phone. It just happened they were in the same city when we were talking on the phone. You just talk to someone who's in a different city. Um, and you'll you'll likely have to use property management. You know, mm-hmm. the reason we're able to not do that is because we live in the same city. There are um, you know, we use an online platform called Hemlane. Uh, we use a basic package they have but they do offer more intensive packages where they're a remote service. But what they do in the more uh, comprehensive packages is, you know, they would take a call from your tenant. They would find someone in that area. Let's say I invest in Indianapolis. They would find someone in Indianapolis that can fix toilets. 
and then, you know, reach out. So you're not involved in that, in that way. Um, but you still need someone to like, you know, show the apartments and turn them over and things like that. So that does become an, an expense that you're definitely factoring in uh, investing remotely, but that's not, um, that, that doesn't automatically kill the numbers or anything like that. Yeah. So talking a little bit more about that, you know, a lot of people, when you talk about this, say, I don't want to be a landlord. When you talk about real mm-hmm. estate investing, can you just talk to us, you know, a little bit more about what does it really take to manage a property and how do you avoid pitfalls when it comes to tenants? I mean, imagine choosing the right tenant is important. Yeah. Yeah. It, really, really important. I think, you know, being a landlord has, it, it depends. There's times you would ask me and I'd say it's not fun at all, but for the most part, <laughs> we actually enjoy it. You know, one of the things we like about this is, you know, that we're investing in the city we're living in and we're helping people, you know, hardworking people get good, affordable housing. And we take a lot of pride in our properties and the way they look and are upkept and things like that. So there's a lot of fulfillment there on top of the the investment reasons, which are a huge benefit. Um but yet, you know, a given week, we usually don't deal with too much. I'm trying to think in the past two or three weeks, um, we had one tenant message who had a, a leaky pipe under their uh, faucet. To be honest, I could have at some point stopped over and just, you know, tightened it or fixed what was going on. Um, just cause I like learning about that stuff, same way with surgery, you just like watch YouTube videos. Um, <laughs> but, but I ended up just calling like a, a plumber that I knew and we worked with and he just went over there a couple of days later and fixed it. Um, and, and then, you know, sometimes it'll be busier if we just, when we just get a new place and we're renting it out, you know, usually that's a little more labor intensive with my wife and I setting up an open house for tenants to come by and then creating a lease and getting them to sign the lease and collecting security deposits and stuff like that. Um, if we take on places that need rehab or, or renovations, we'll always bring our contractor through before we buy it to get a scope of work and sort of an estimate. And if, if that makes sense, then essentially we just sort of set them loose on the place until um they're done. And, and again, that comes from having a really good relationship with them, but it's not, I, zero times have we been like awoken in the middle of the night because of anything. Um, there's very few emergencies. So even if you're texted, like, I mean, a lot of times I'll get out of the OR or something or, or and my wife is working and there'll be a message. It's not like that's the end of the world where I need to like scrub out a case or something. So, so it's definitely pretty manageable. You do want to get the right tenants. That's one of the things that we will most likely always do ourselves is, is place the tenants because we've just found by meeting them, by talking to them, you learn so much more than on paper, obviously, and just getting good people, which you can never be a hundred percent judge, but you get a good sense of people from talking to them for a while and then meeting them in person and walking through that can make a big difference. We've had issues inheriting tenants in properties we've bought that were not really respectful or, or not paying and things like that. And that's, that's honestly the biggest headache that, that we've had because again, it's stressful because you're, you're losing money. You're also dealing with people that are not kind of working on the same wavelength as you, or maybe not like I said, sharing the same mutual respect. So that, that can be tough. And we actually try to avoid places um, that that have tenants. 
already placed because we want to place our own. So that that's definitely one important lesson that we've learned. And would you recommend setting up, like, did you set up an LLC or a trust or, you know, to, to kind of protect yourself? Um, I, I know that's yeah. a whole topic in of itself, but. No, that's a good question. Yes, we did. So there's a lot of different ways you can do it. And I'll say first, when we, when we meet, you know, the tenants and stuff like that, we, we just tell them that we're, we're a property management company that my wife and I run a property management company. Um, and, and not that we're the owners of the place just to protect our anonymity a little bit. Um, but yeah, in terms of LLC, there's a bunch of different ways you could do it. What we decided to do was we just formed an LLC, uh, like in New York state and all of our properties are within that LLC. Um, so, you know, if I get sued on like for malpractice or something like that, this is a completely different entity. Um, there are way more complex ways to do it. Like there's people who have set up what's called an umbrella LLC, where you have an LLC in Wyoming that's a parent LLC. And then every property you own is in a separate LLC and you have to have separate bank accounts for all of them. And that probably does offer, not probably, it definitely offers increased protection, but a lot of increased complexity, a lot of increased cost, um, and the increased protection, in my opinion, is pretty marginal. So that's why after thinking about it for a long time, we ended up just uh, just creating a, a regular old LLC and putting our properties in there. And we have a, a one bank account for all of our properties that we keep separate from our others. And that's how we we separate these things. Is a perfect no, but it, it definitely it will protect us. So that's what we decided to do. Can you tell us uh, a lesson that you've learned the hard way that you think would help our listeners just starting out in real estate investing? Yeah, I would say, well, say I'll give you two lessons. One you learned the hard way, one one that hasn't been the hard way. I think the the hard way what we learned is stick to your criteria and like investing in general is a very emotional thing. Investing in real estate can be really emotional. We think of it like we're buying a house that we're going to live in, which which is not the case. You know, when you buy your your primary residence, that you're buying it emotionally, and and a lot of the value is tied up in the emotion of it. When you're doing this, it's purely a numbers game, and so we have definitely gotten caught up with um, properties where we've said, okay, this is this is the number, the the price that we can pay for it where it makes sense. And then we've gotten to like a bidding war or something where we didn't want to lose it. And we've ended up paying a little bit more, or we've overlooked aspects um, like the one where we inherited the tenants. Um, and, you know, we've always overcome those mistakes and and the investments themselves have been successful in the long term, but we, we've caused ourselves, you know, more headache than, than we needed to. Um, and we've learned, like we recently had a property that we had under contract and um, it needed a lot of renovation. It also had a tenant that was not paying. And we put in the contract that the tenant needed to be out before we uh, closed. And the, um, the the seller just didn't meet that requirement. They, they essentially were not totally forthcoming with us about the tenant and not paying and whether they had a lease or not. And so we just got out of the contract. We got our money back. I think in the past we would have probably fallen for the sunk cost fallacy or got caught up in, oh, but this one could do could do this or that when it just it stopped meeting our criteria. 
And, you know, we knew we had to get out. So in the past, we wouldn't have necessarily always listened to ourselves. We just listened to ourselves, got out and have now found another property. There's always plenty of opportunities. Um, and then the, the other lesson that I think is important is it's, it, it's like anything, you know, growth with real estate investing. It's, it's like a hockey stick. There's exponential growth. People get caught up a lot when you, if you buy one property, for, for most people, if you buy a 50 unit property or you have that kind of money initially that you can, you know, put a down payment and get a property that big, then the initial investment is huge. And that's, that's great. But that's not the way it works for most people. You know, we had enough to put down for a small duplex. And when we got that duplex, it basically cash flowed for us around like 900 to a thousand dollars a month. That's not going to change any doctor's life. That, that $900 to $1,000 a month. It's nice, but you're not going to make that, buy that one property, and then all of a sudden be like, okay, I can retire now. Um, you, you have to have the, the long vision. And that first property, you start making that money, you save that money, you save up you know, other money, you buy a second property. Then all of a sudden, it starts to snowball more and more. Now it's where we've been able to buy a property essentially every few months, where the first time it took us pretty much a year between the first and the second property. Um, and now with the four we have, we cash flow around seven, 8,000 a month. Um, we'll be adding three more and we'll be above $10,000 a month. And that is something that, you know, puts a really big dent that's replacing around half of my clinical income. Um, so that that's really nice. That's awesome. Uh, so last question for you. So, um, and it's, uh, the million dollar question. What's your take on the current market is, uh, are we in a bubble? Is the next, uh, housing crisis right around the corner? Should we wait to buy or should we just buy now? I, I have no idea. And <laughs> the nice thing is that the, you know, the strategy that I use and that a lot of other successful investors use, and I think is the the right one, it doesn't really matter. Because again, it's it's by the numbers. So have we bought at inflated prices? For sure. Properties that we've bought, it was when the market was high, regardless if it's a bubble or not, it definitely prices were higher than they were in the past. And we paid that, but it still cash flows a lot, like 10 to 20% in all cases of our properties. And you know, we don't really care what the market value of the property is. Like, let's say there was a huge crash and my duplex, one of them that, you know, we bought for 200,000 is now has a market value of, you know, $10. We don't really care because it's still making the same cash flow. It's still cash flowing a thousand plus a month, whatever that market value is. And we're not looking, our plan doesn't require selling it in the short term. In fact, we plan to hold it for as long as we can so to delay paying taxes on any sale, um, you know, or we would use a tax-free exchange, a 1031 exchange, or just leave it to our kids, which then that happens in a yeah. tax-free manner. So we don't really care. Um, I think this is anecdotally, and I can only speak in the one market of Buffalo, we've seen prices go down recently because interest rates are going up. Um, I mean, again, if a crash happens, I... I don't want that to happen or, or wouldn't be excited from the perspective of people who suffered from it. But from the perspective of someone who wants to buy and rent out houses, it would actually be good because prices for houses would be low and people would be looking to rent. And so um, I think 
in, in that sense, it doesn't really matter. Your, your strategy is pretty market uh, independent. The people who got in trouble with market crashes are people who buy a property. Um, like, you know, let's say in, instead of that duplex, we bought at two, 200,000 and it cash flows however much a month. We decided, oh, we're going to buy it at 300,000 uh, because that's what they listed it at. And, you know, whatever, it won't cash flow, but in a year, it's going to be worth 400,000. So we're going to just sell it and we'll make a hundred thousand um, dollars yeah. minus capital gains taxes. Those people get burned by a crash because all of a sudden it's worth, you know, a hundred thousand dollars and they can't sell it without a huge loss and it's not cash flowing. So they're paying money out of pocket every month. That's where the trouble comes in. And that's why uh, cash flow is the most important metric to when you're deciding whether property is worth buying or not. Awesome. Well, Jordan, thanks so much for being on Behind the Knife. I, I, I know you're incredibly busy, so I really appreciate you being so generous with your time. And I'm sure our listeners, I know I got a lot out of it. And I'm sure our listeners will as well. If they want to learn more, um, where can they find you? Website, Twitter, uh, email, where, where, can, where can people uh, find you? Yeah, the best place is um, you can definitely find me on my site. It's uh, prudentplasticsurgeon.com. Uh, you can also email me directly at jordan at prudentplasticsurgeon.com. I respond to all the emails um, and I'm on social media. Everything's just at Jordan Fry MD. Um, so yeah, please reach out. Awesome. Well, thank you. And thanks everybody for joining us on Behind the Knife. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.